This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, same old story for Albion, really. Uh, a series of disappointments since we last recorded. Two more games, one more point on the board, no more wins. It's now one win in 13. That number just keeps ticking up and up. Pete, when we spoke after the Swansea game, I think you and I both said that Steve Bruce was fairly fortunate if he managed to remain in his job going into the Preston game. Since then, as I say, we've played two more games. We haven't won either of them. I think we've gone beyond he's fortunate to be in a job to, at this point, one win from 13 league games. You've got to ask the question, how on earth is he still our manager? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's getting clearer and clearer that some of the players are losing faith, hope, um, interest. They just seem to be uh, not wanting to play again. We saw it when those last couple of games under Ishmael. Um, you could just see that all the complete, any hope that the players had, it was gone. Um, and you can that's starting to show again. So I think at this point, it's virtually impossible for him to turn it around because he seems to be losing some of the players. And he's most certainly lost the fans. So, yeah, for me, I, well... Apart from the fact that Albin is skint, then I can't see why he's still in the job. I mean, not uh, not wanting to sort of like um, deflect anything away from Bruce because he's got to carry the can here. But um, I saw Chris Lukowski made a very interesting point on Twitter that including interim managers, if um, if if Bruce does go, that will be the tenth that Matt Phillips and Jake Livermore have seen off. Is it uh, not blaming Phillips and Livermore? especially because actually I think in the last few games, Livermore's probably been one of our best players. But is it becoming a bit of a concern how many managers this group of players or certainly a section of this group of players seem to be able to see off? I mean, somebody I made this point on Twitter and somebody said to me, oh, but against Preston, there was, um, I think think it was something like... um, seven Bruce signings were in there or something uh, or, uh, or something like that okay but a culture runs through the whole club it's not it's not about just about the starting 11 um it's it's about the whole group and when you come in you almost buy into a culture and I, I have to say I do worry about the culture that is passed on from as players come into this uh, come into our football club because you, you're right these players gave up to a certain degree on 
Valerian Ishmael, whether that's whether they whether Valerian Ishmael was getting it right or wrong, and whether some of his man management techniques were correct, is a different story. But I personally don't think you should ever give up on the pitch. You should be out there for the fans if you're not out there for the manager. And equally, I feel like these players showed a level of mental weakness at the back end of the promotion season under Billich. <laughs> they also showed a level of mental weakness under um, Big uh, Big Sam until the new signings came in, getting drummed four, five, just games. It's not a matter of getting beat, but it was the fact that they were uh, there was a goal going in and suddenly they would ship three or four. And I just feel like this group has shown time and time again that it hasn't got the stomach for the fight. I'm not saying Steve, I'm not defending Steve Bruce here, by the way. I think he, I think his time has come and he's got to go. But my concern is, uh, Pete, that time and again, when the going gets tough, this group doesn't get going. And for that, you've got to look at the, the constants, I guess, in the, in the dressing room. Players that have, have been there throughout different periods of, of where that's happened. Um, I mean, most recently under Ishmael, it's largely the same. Same group of players, but even before that, and just the, I mean, even any constant coaching staff, that's where the kind of culture comes from, the players that are there long-term and the coaches that are there long-term. So I think if you're saying that's an issue, then I think you've got to, well, you've got to have a turnaround. And I mean, thankfully, there's a few players that have been with us for a while that are running out of contract at the end of the season, so... Unless we um, decide to to extend their contracts, which I don't think we will. Um, if I think it, if we do, there'll be a riot. Exactly. So I think there's a, a chance to um, to almost have a bit of a reset on the squad and, and bring in the right characters and kind of hopefully change that culture and the the atmosphere within the dressing room. And well, I mean, maybe I'm being hopeful, but. Yeah, hopefully in the next couple of years we might see see some positives from that. Maybe, but then again, Pete, and this is where I wanted to kind of take this, is that I think the culture problem at our football club goes far beyond the playing staff. Um, I think it reaches way up into the boardroom, and we're seeing that with Ron Gourlay's reticence to sack Steve Bruce, because... The bottom line is any reasonably minded chief executive who was chief executive of a football club who were one of the top four favourites with most bookmakers to go up at the start of this season. If after 13 games they found themselves in the relegation zone and we could quite easily be bottom, by the way, if, if, if Huddersfield and Coventry had played the same amount of games as us, any reasonably minded CEO would surely look at that and go one win in 13 is not good enough and the players aren't playing the players don't know how to win games it's time to make a change yet he doesn't seem to want to um I am hearing rumors that he has no intention of sacking Steve Bruce at this moment in time and that actually he's um his solution to this problem seems to be to maybe look outside for additional support and maybe bring in more coaches and and things like that you know maybe that's why Roy Keane was in the stands against press against Preston we don't know but from what I'm hearing from what I hear through 
what minimal contacts I, I have around football. I'm, I, I don't purport myself to be one of these uh, lovely little in the know Twitter accounts or anything like that. But, you know, I worked in football for 15 years. I do still speak to people from time to time. And what I'm hearing is that there is no there's no real intention to sack Steve Bruce unless it gets there really is no choice. And the only reason I can see for that is that Gourlay is protecting himself, that Gourlay thinks if he costs like a million pounds or whatever it is to sack Steve Bruce, if, if he does that, then he will probably be the next head on the chopping block and he doesn't want that. So he's just going to keep defending him. For some reason, Lie has very misplaced faith in Ron Gourlay. And I just think he's a massive part of the problem. I think it's jobs for the boys at the moment in, st- in terms of Steve Bruce. He was hired because he's Gourlay's pal in the first place. I think he's still in a job because he's Gourlay's pal. I think if they didn't have a personal relationship, I think he would have been gone... I don't think he'd have just been uh, just just be gone after the Luton game. I think he would have been gone weeks ago. To be honest, he probably he probably would have been gone before the international break. If truth be told, and I just think Ron Gourlay is out for himself. I think he's got absolutely no interest in doing what is best for West Bromwich Albion Football Club. I think he has sold the fans a dream. Um, I think he said all the right things when he came in in the press. I don't think he's lived up to any of those things. I think he's tried to buy off the fans with some cheap season tickets and a fan zone and that and, and a few Albion assembly appearances. That is all he has done. But uh, he said he said greater communication. We've heard nothing about him uh, from him about what happened on deadline day. We have heard, uh, I, I know that the, the local press, I saw Joe Chapman tweeted that he has asked to speak to Gourlay. Well, we're still waiting to see, uh, to see that interview at the moment. There's no sign of that. Um, he's not, he, he's not, he, he's not putting himself forward at this point in time when we really do need to hear from our chief executive as to what his plan is, because at the moment we're a, we're a club in a massive mess. We're a club in the relegation zone of the championship. We need to know what he is going to do to fix this. We haven't seen any of the actions that he said. We haven't seen an improvement in the football structure. And as we said on last week's pod, Pete, that ties your hands then when, when it comes to recruiting the next guy. Because if you haven't got the right football structure, then you limit yourself to people who can run the club from top to bottom. We don't need that. We need a return to the Dan Ashworth days. We need a t- return to a football club that is self-sustaining, where the manager pops out, the next manager pops in, and it's almost seamless. I mean, we almost kept the the, the coaching staff around uh, various managers. You know, managers would come in with their number two. But other than that, we keep the various coaching staff, the goalkeeper staff, the, the, other, the other coaches. We kept them through numerous managers. We can't do that anymore. And the whole thing is a mess. And I think it just purely comes back to Ron Gourlay, his total and utter self-interest, and the fact that he has basically made a load of promises to the West Bromwich Albion fan base that he has not lived up to. We're in a difficult situation. We, If we got rid of Bruce and Gourlay tomorrow, which... I personally don't think either of them are doing a good job. The issue is we're back to having no football people at the club. So we really are, Pete, in a situation where I feel like we're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because we've got two people who are massively underperforming in their jobs to the point where they are damaging the the, the longevity of this football club. Yet 
Equally, I think you could get rid of Bruce maybe and replace him with someone, but I still don't think you're going to get a silver bullet of a manager who's going to fix everything. And if you get rid of Gourlay as well or at all, do I trust Ken and Lie to actually have a plan to replace him with with somebody better? No, because because they bought into the rubbish that he spouted and uh, when he was here as a consultant and and uh, and believed everything that he told them and made him chief exec off the back of it. I think we're in such a, a tangled mess. Yeah, we really are. And you mentioned that Gourlay's probably not pulling the trigger because he's worried about wasting a million of Lies cash or whatever it is. Um, to get rid of Bruce, but at this current rate, he's going to cost Lai even more if he doesn't sack Bruce because the right way again. We're but do you think be- Lai's aware of that? Genuinely, I, that's not that's not me. That's not me trying to make fun of Lai's lack of knowledge on 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 in football. That's a genuine question. Do we think Lai is is actually aware of how precarious this is? Because I got told by people around the football club when Tony Pulis was manager that that there were people telling Lai. And this is why Lai gave him a new contract um, the summer before uh, we, he had to he had to sack him mid season. But there was people around the club telling Lai, "You have Tony Pulis as manager, you are guaranteed Premier League survival." And Lai was believing that. Well, if you're spending two hundred million of your cash and then on a business, and you got absolutely no idea about the industry, then well, I mean, you're just a fool, aren't you? But the way that we're going, I mean, I'm currently say he does know anything about the industry because since he's taken over then since he bought the club um you know it's just been a downwards trajectory so yeah it feels like he is solely relying on Gourlay to basically do run do the running of the club um and he's well yeah if he did ever have an interest in in the club um then that's definitely gone now um I'd have thought he'd be more protective of his money, um, considering he's got such a massive investment in it. And at this rate, he's never going to get close to what he paid for the club unless he really sorts out the issues within the club. And that, you know, that starts at the top, which is him, but he's the one that can make a decision about people below him. And the money he brought in in Gourlay is just, well, as you say, made made a ton of promises. Um doesn't really hasn't really kept them, and seems very reluctant to to sack Bruce for for whatever the reason may be. But like I say, it's going to cost a lot, a lot more than how much it is to cost. How much, however much it will be to pay Bruce off to leave. Um, if we go down, then that's that's a much bigger loss to lie. So yeah, I think I think he needs to take a bit more interest. Um, I know he probably won't, but. If I had invested 200 million, well, I wish I had 200 million, but if I had invested that kind of money in, in something, then you think you want to protect it. And, and the way we're going is, is just his investments going down rapidly. Can we trust anything Gourlay says at this point? If indeed he bothers to actually say anything again at all, because as I say, he made a big song and dance about uh, about better communication with the fans, breaking down the barriers between the supporters and the club when he first came in. And then as soon as things have got difficult, he seems to have gone into hiding. I mean, you know, what what, what do you think of the the communication or lack thereof uh, between the club and Gourlay. And can we trust, uh, can we trust anything this bloke says to us or, or, or or was just 
you know, Jacob, when he came on here, the, uh, for anybody who doesn't remember the, the Reading fan that we had on when we hired Gourlay, was he just absolutely spot on in everything he told us and warned us? He might well have been because I think um, Gourlay came, I think Gourlay could see when he was doing his consorting roles, see issues that there were within the club. And, you know, when he got the got his new role, then he he told us what those issues were and told us he was going to fix them. And, you know, straight away get get the fans on board because he's he said the right said the right things, but when you don't follow through with it, um, you know the lack of communication. Um, I mean, it was just that that period at the end of last season where he made the promises of more communication with the fans and getting everyone back on board, and then we had the the cheap season tickets and. Um, but they were all in these initial statement as well, Pete. I mean, this this was it was literally his manifesto when he came into the job. Yeah, and I think it was just to get people on board, get people buying season tickets, and now we're in a, a tough place. He's yeah, like you say, he seems to have gone into hiding. Um, He's a politician, isn't he? Well, yeah, <laughs> sounds about right, doesn't it? But you know, it's he's not the man that he promised he was going to be when he he first got given the role. And that sounds a lot like a politician to me. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and as we say, the issue at the moment, the, the, the most glaring issue is that, look, the bottom line is, we, we, I, I think Pete and I both agree on this, and Pete, you feel free to jump in and tell me if, if you feel I'm representing your opinion incorrectly, because I would never want to do that. But I think we both think that there are much, much bigger problems at our football club than Steve Bruce. However, the problem is that, Finding a buyer to take the club off lie takes a long time and is difficult. And the kind of sums of money that we're talking about is not the sort of thing where a fan-led consortium can buy him out. It, it, you know, you, you need some sort of serious financial backer to do that. It's, it, it, it's a challenging and long road ahead. And I hope we, we find one and we hope we find someone and I hope Lai is actively looking for people to buy the club off him because he's clearly got no interest in, it, in, in its well-being and he, he doesn't want to be here. He's passing it off to other people. Um, he's using it like a bank account to withdraw money. He doesn't, he's no interest in owning a football club. He, he, he it's it's probably it's partly an asset, partly probably a weight around his neck at this point. But that's going to take a long time. And as I say, the issue with Gourlay is, yeah, OK, you could fire him tomorrow. But then what do you do? Because there's quite literally nobody running the club. Uh, so it becomes difficult. So whilst there are bigger problems with uh, than Gourlay, the only one that really you can make a fix on, make a change on now is Bruce. And I think he's he's got to a point where he's untenable. I mean, fair play to the fans, right? I thought they were tremendous for eighty minutes against uh, against Luton. The, the, there was there was chance of uh, against Gouch online. Fine, absolutely no issues of that. Calling him greedy and things. That's no, uh, I've got no problem with that. But they got behind the team for eighty minutes. Then obviously those substitutions happened, and the fans the uh, the fans turned um now i don't think that's particularly helpful because we're 10 minutes from the end of a game um that we are nil nil in and could still win however the fans the, the fans are frustrated we've won one in 13 or one in 12 games and 80 minutes at that point and they feel like they've got to make themselves heard so really 
fair enough to a certain degree. I'm, I'm kind of in a position where the, the stuff in the last 10 minutes, I don't condemn it and I don't condone it either. I think personally, did it give us the, the best chance of winning the game in the last 10 minutes? No, probably it didn't. But equally, did it, um, did it give us, uh, did they need to make themselves heard? Yes, they probably did. And is it understandable that they feel the need to make themselves heard? Yes, it definitely is. So I kind of get that. And I thought, I thought Bruce's reaction after the game in the press, and Bruce has made a series of little dodgy statements in the in 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 the press and he seems to be inclined to these little slips um where I don't know whether emotionally it gets the better of him or or, or what it is I mean he obviously or he just maybe doesn't understand the the, the Monday media and how things are going to get turned against him but he obviously came out with the one after the Wigan game which was um I gl- I'm glad I didn't pay to watch that which was a really stupid thing to say and whilst I know he didn't mean it as disrespectful to those who did it wasn't a clever thing to th- thing to say he came out with the one around there's no list um and things like that and then uh, and he obviously came out with uh, with with last week the comment that I still believe we can finish higher than last season which obviously was a 10th place finish setting the bar as ninth is success again I don't think he necessarily meant that but it's just a litany of things that he is saying that he really shouldn't be coming out with and equally I thought what he said on BBC WM after uh, after the game when asked the question about the fans chanting you don't know what you're doing at him was extremely ill-advised because what he said was that um, first of all, he, he justified the substitutions by saying that both Brandon Thomas Asante and Grady Dean Garner were injured. That's fair enough. I personally think he should have left it there. He then went on to say, I think if you've had over a thousand games in management, that there's a fairly good chance that you probably do know what you're doing. Here's where I stand on that, Steve. I couldn't give a stuff what you have done in your thousand games in management. I don't care what you did when you're in charge of Hull, Huddersfield, Wigan, Newcastle, Hull. I don't care. I, uh, Crystal Palace, all these, uh, all these teams. I don't care. I could not care one iota what you did in your previous jobs. The bottom line is you are 13 games into a championship season with a team that was tipped to go up and you have them 22nd in the league, you've won one game in 13. Do you not understand why it is completely and utterly reasonable for anybody, let alone the paying public of your football club, to in this moment question your competency to do your job? You can't get a group of highly paid footballers who are a lot of whom are easily good enough to be in any number of teams in this division to win more than one game out of 13. I I don't get why he thinks... Yes, it's not nice. It's not nice when people question your competency. But it's completely and utterly reasonable. And to turn around to, uh, to us and say, I've been given a 1,000 games in management by other clubs, I don't care, Steve. You're making a pig's ear of this job. Yes, you you are highly unlucky. You were highly unlucky in some of the games this season. You've also been highly unlucky with a few injuries. But I'm sorry, Birmingham, Swansea, 
Preston, Luton. Those were not bad luck. They were bad management. And I'm, and you cannot sit here and tell me it is unreasonable for the people who pay good money, home and away, week in, week out, money that in a uh, that in a financial climate they a lot of them genuinely don't really have as expendable income. It is not unreasonable for them to question your competency when you and your team ruin their weekend every week. And even with some of his decisions, you can see that um, he seems to be making them too late. Like I think basically any fan could have told you that Button needs dropping a few weeks ago, and yet he's he's waited till till. I mean, the Preston game was the first first game that Palmer came in, but I think almost any Albion fan could have told you he needed dropping five six games before that. So the fact that he's saying he shouldn't be shouldn't be questioned because he's had a thousand games, but still makes decisions like that and leaves them so late to to the point where it seems like the players have have kind of lost belief um and the fans definitely have that you know you're really you're really going to struggle to win games from now on if he'd made that decision about dropping button for palmer six weeks earlier when there was a bit of a more there was a bit better atmosphere around the club and then seems to be a better atmosphere in the dressing room then we might have stood a few chance, a chance of winning a couple of games. Um, and it's not, it goes- it's not just the button decision either, is it, Pete? I mean, we we, we talked about uh, you know the high line against Birmingham after, uh, with, with without Ajayi after we'd seen it exposed against Burnley. We've we've spoken a number of times on this podcast that Taylor Gardner Hickman is not in a four. He's not a very good defensive right back. And yet he puts him in against Preston when he's bemoaning in the press the fact that we concede, concede goals early. He plays Connor Townsend at centre-half in a four. I could understand that in a three, but Connor is never a centre-back in a four. Okay, he got it, it, it went okay at Norwich, but that was a one-off. And then he, he just does it again in the Swansea game and, and we lose the game because of it, because Connor gets rolled by, uh, by Oberfemi. And these are, this isn't being smart after the event. We, we were talking about that high line for, uh, for, for, for a little bit saying you can't, we said at the start of the season, you can't lose a Jai because if you do, you can't defend in the same way because nobody else has got that pace in behind. We've been saying since the end of last season that Taylor Gardner-Hickman is not a very good defensive right-back. Fair enough in a three-centre-halves with him as a wing-back, fine, but not in a four. And yet these are things that Steve Bruce can't see, and he and yet he doesn't like his competency being questioned. Yeah, I mean, he's just been slow to react to a few things, um, which to me gives people the right to, to question it. Because I think if fans can point out potential issues and give fixes before the manager is, and then the manager get then two weeks later does those exact fixes, then I think it gives you every right to to question his competency. But yeah, he seems to he seems to um, think very highly of himself, and he has been a successful manager. But saying that he can't be questioned. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous because we, we're sitting in the relegation zone of the championship with probably one of the the top five squads in the well, the top five first 11s in the league. So, and the top yeah. five wage budgets, Pete. Yeah, um, which tends to correlate with with league position at the end of the year. And I mean, if we're going at this rate, then we'd 
we're massively underperforming. I think any any football fan could tell you that. So, yeah, for me, you shouldn't be saying you you're untouchable to any fan's opinion because, I mean, you got to go and prove it, really, haven't you? You got to prove it at the club. You can't say oh, I've had a thousand, I've managed a thousand games, um, so you can't question me when you when you sit in in the relegation zone of the championship. Um, it matters what he does this season, not what he's done for the previous thousand games. So, yeah, I think it, you know it's a stupid comment to make. Yeah, and one of a number of stupid comments. And just one thing I'd like to clarify on this, though, as well, because uh, whilst Pete and I have got this platform and we're going to use it to have our say on Steve Bruce, and I, as I say, I, I, I completely condone. Well, I, 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 I completely understand the fans having their say on him in the ground as well and chanting at him and getting frustrated and chanting Bruce out if that's how they feel and stand up if you want Bruce sacked and all these sorts of things. That's fine. I think there's got to be a line, though, Pete. And I'm just going to mention this, that a video appeared after the Preston game on on, on social media of um, Steve Bruce having a conversation with a fan outside the ground. It was, first of all, I think people have read way too much into that video in this, without any real context because the video is very conveniently... It's edited at the end, and there is a lack of footage at the uh, at, at the front to show what actually happened. Um, the the supposed accusation being that um, some something was shouted at the Albion team bus, and Alex Bur- Alex Bruce flipped the bird at um, a supporter and his and his son, and that um, the the supporter got quite upset about it. And Steve Bruce then came across to um, to to have a conversation about it. Steve Bruce uh, said was visible saying in the video that there was profanity thrown in his direction. Um, and uh, the video kind of cuts off before the fan has an opportunity to kind of address that um, that accusation, which I did find a little in- interesting. And you know, well, look look look, look at it this way: it wouldn't stack up very well in the court of law as evidence. Let's put it that way. I think, yeah, have you say in st- in the stadium? Um, have you know if you want to if you want to put. If, if we, we, you know, you want to organise some sort of a protest, a walkout, um, it, as I've seen a number of people talking about, if you want to put banners up, all these things are fine because they are, they are making your point with a degree of civility. I think standing effectively in a car park, hurling abuse at players and managers who, whatever you think of the job they're doing. And I think we all think it's a poor job at the moment. Uh, there's there's no getting away from that. Where we are in the in the in the league table speaks volumes. They aren't trying to lose games, you know. And I don't see that standing in a car park and hurling abuse, or if indeed that is what happened, that's certainly what Steve Bruce said happened. Um, I don't think it helps anyone. And I'd just like to draw that distinction between making making stands, making protests, as I say, organising walkouts, putting up banners, chants in the stadium. All of these things are completely fine and uh, and great ways to, to make your point as a supporter base. I don't think going and hurling abuse at a guy in a car park, if indeed that is what happened, is the way forward. Do you, Pete? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, yeah, I mean... 
I think you're addressing the wrong issue as well, really. But I mean, Bruce isn't going to walk away when he's got that that deal. I think if you're going to, um, obviously I'm condemning it full stop, but I think he's still approaching the wrong issue. I mean, Bruce, as I say, he's not going to walk away from the big contract. So I think you've got to take issues with um, the people that can can put him out of the contract. Um, so Gourlay, for example, and the owners. Um, obviously, he can be in, unhappy with his football, but I think, yeah, I, I think you should direct the anger elsewhere and show it in, in different ways, as you say, not waiting for for managers, players, whoever, in the car park after a game. Um, I think that's unfair. Um, as you say, Pete, it's it's a bit like comparing it to the button situation where if Steve Bruce keeps picking button, button no longer becomes the problem, Bruce is. To the same extent as if Gourlay keeps giving Bruce games as manager when he can't win any, it's Gourlay that's the problem, not Bruce. Yeah, exactly. And it's the people that gave him a contract to that length and chose him as the manager. Um, yeah, I mean... Bruce can change the team. He can he can do stuff to try and give us a better chance of winning games. But um, he's ne- he's never going to walk away when he's got a got a contract in place, and it could be his last job. And it's probably worth a, a good amount of money the contract. So I think the anger's got to be directed elsewhere. You know, buttons. If yeah, like you say, with button. If he gets picked, he's going to go in goal and give it his best shot. But if he's not got the ability, then that's not really his fault. It's the fault of the, the manager that's picking him rather than someone else who might have the ability. Um, so, yeah, I think the anger's got to be directed elsewhere and in, in other forms, like you say, chanting in the ground, uh, banners, that sort of stuff. Those sort of protests to get the message across better um, and are just, well, I suppose, more respectable as well because... I'm, at the end of the day, it's a, obviously supporters have got a, a big interest that they pay their money to go and see the games, but you'd never have someone just to relate it to, to an average working person. You'd never have someone waiting in your, your car park outside your office when you finish your job to, to go and hurl abuse at you if you've had a bad day. But um, So I think you do have to see the human element of it as well for him. At the end of the day, he's got to go home. He's He's got a life outside of football yeah I completely agree with that I think I think sometimes it's very easy to dehumanize these the, the, these managers and these players and, and and forget that that they are that and and whilst whilst they're not above criticism there's as I say there's ways and means of getting your point across but that's enough said on that point I think we're just I'm just going to revisit a little bit the Palmer button thing Pete because I mean, I agree. Eleven games was far too long for Steve Bruce to make his mind up about um, about Palmer and Button. Equally, I, I, I do wonder why, having had a chance to have a look at Button in the summer, that he decided that Button was the was the man for him in goal. And I felt like that was thrown into even starker uh, a starker spotlight when we went to Preston and we got to have a look at. Freddie Woodman, who, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, uh, Steve uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, because you're the stats man, but I believe is statistically the best goalkeeper in the division, moved to Preston in the summer for a fee that 
it's undisclosed, so it, 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 but it's believed to be somewhere around sort of a half a million, a million. Not talking big money at all here. A player that Steve Bruce knows well from his days at Newcastle. You've got to wonder where were we on 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 that one. I know it's being a bit smart after the event because, but but I've always liked Freddie Woodman. Obviously, I I've got a background having worked at the Football Association, and I uh, Freddie Woodman was was one of the goalkeepers down the youth teams, and uh, I believe actually it was a World Cup winning goalkeeper. Correct me if I'm wrong uh, for for uh, for the England under twenties. So. I've seen and heard a lot about Freddie Woodman, and I know that he's, he was certainly very highly thought of on the national circuit. And I just can't believe that a goalkeeper like that was going for that, uh, that amount of money, somebody that Bruce already knows an awful lot about. And we were without a goalkeeper, and it wasn't one we were sniffing around. Yeah, um, you're quite right about him being uh, the best. Well, if you look at, if you look at his um, prevented goals per 90, then... Out of all the keepers that played more than six games, he's he's prevented the most. Um, pre- prevented the most than you could expect um, based on the quality of shots and stuff. I mean, if you're looking over a small sample size, which is only two games in the championship, but if you cut it down to to all keepers that have played at least two games, and Alex Palmer is actually the highest for prevented goals per ninety, so. I mean, it's. it's oh, don't worry, we're going to come to him in just a second because I've got some positive things to say about young, uh, young Alex Palmer, who's not actually that young. Inexperienced Alex Palmer would be a better way of putting it. There we but, go. Um, yeah, Woodman. Yeah, he's been excellent. Um, been really good shot stopper. Um, but like you say, I mean, why why weren't we looking at him instead of offering Button the extension? Um, for, I don't know. I always. I always just think it probably came back came down to the finances and the fact that the recruitment team is seems to be But if the fee was about half a mil and and to be fair I've seen I've seen massively different fees reported because some of the Newcastle media have gone as high as 3 million but a lot of the Preston media have gone it ain't 3 million because we haven't got 3 million it was it's more like half a mil so if it is if it is around you know anything under a million pounds you know, we managed to find that money for Brandon Thomas Asante, which was about three hundred and twenty grand. Surely we could have found that. Well, yeah, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? But I don't know. Bruce, Bruce seemed to like Button. He, he was desperate to have him to move in in the area, wasn't he? And um, after that, seemed to want well, definitely seemed to want him as as number one. Um, so I don't know why. I don't know what he was seeing in him because so far this season he's been he's been terrible. Um, well, I, d- I didn't rate him last season, Pete. I don't know what you thought. I didn't really have too much. I didn't really think anything of him, to be honest. I thought he didn't seem to be particularly good. He didn't seem to be. He definitely didn't seem to be as bad as as he has been this season. But oh no, definitely not as bad as this season. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I, yeah, it just it doesn't really make sense. They'd got the whole. They got last season to see it. They got pre-season and training to see it and and yet for some reason it wasn't spotted that he, he wasn't good enough um, I think you've got to question the, the judgement of either Steve Bruce or or the goalkeeping coaches that are, are making that decision I was going to say um, do we need to flag Gar- that's one that Gary Walsh that's clearly here. got wrong and it's, it's probably cost us quite a few points so far this season yeah do we need to flag Gary Walsh here well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I obviously don't know exactly how it works, but 
I would have thought that Bruce would go to to Walsh as the goalkeeper coach, as the one who watches them train every day, and is the goalkeeping expert, and say, "Who's the best keeper here? Who should we be playing?" And if he said David Button and hasn't changed his mind on that for um, up till now, up to a couple of games ago, then then I think the judgment's wrong there, um, and it's got to be questioned because. Like I say, it's so far this season. It's it's probably cost us quite a few points. The fact that Button seems to be letting every shot that he faces go in. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder where we would be if we'd started Palmer from the start. I mean, so far he's been he's been solid um, when he's played in the league, but still very early days. So I'm hopeful, but I'm hopeful it will continue. But I, yeah, as I say, it's still very early days, and I think we need to see a bit more of him before we can can really say that we trust him. Yeah, I'd say better but not perfect would be my take on Alex Palmer. I mean, first of all, you've got to caveat the Luton game a little bit with the fact that he had he, he had five at the back in front of him, which Button hasn't had all season. So that makes a difference. But if you look at the Preston game, you look at that save he made he made early on, it was an unbelievable save where he moves his feet so quickly and that's been one of my big problems with David Button I've said a number of times and I know people some people don't agree with me on this but I I blame him for for a lot of the goals that go in down at his near post um you look at the two against uh, uh, that go across him I should say um that he doesn't seem to get across too quickly enough you look at the two against Blackburn and as I say there's the one against Swansea I think he's got to do better on I just don't think as a goalkeeper David Button moves his feet quickly enough which which is why I was so pleased to see Alex Palmer make a save early on against Preston, where his movement and his reaction to what was developing was so fast that in the end he made he made a brilliant save. Um, I thought well, he made a good tip over against Luton. It's worth noting because you know you can't ignore any negatives that he still nearly let in a very similar goal to the one Button did against Swansea, where Button came and flapped at the cross. Um, Palmer mis- did misjudge one cross in the second half and got away with it because it was it was well defended. Um, but generally speaking, I think uh, I think Palmer's Palmer's done pr- uh, done pretty well. And to be honest, the bar wasn't set particularly high for him. Would I at the moment, on what I've seen, would I want to see Alex Palmer have the shirt for the next few years? No, probably not. But then I don't think that's very, very likely. Whoever's the goalkeeper, because I think Josh Griffiths is going to be our goalkeeper from next season and probably going forward. Um, I think for the rest of this season, at the moment, I think I can probably just about get on board with Alex Palmer as our number one. I do think he'll cost us a few goals and he will cost us more goals than Sam Johnston did last season. And I think he cost us more goals than if we'd gone and signed someone like Freddie Woodman. But I certainly don't think he's going to cost us anywhere near as many as Button. That's kind of where I'm at on the goalkeeping situation, Pete. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. Um, I think you'd, you'd be hard pushed to find a keeper that would cost you as many as Button has cost us so far. Um, and yeah, like I say, in the, in the first two games that he's played in the league, his, his shot stopping numbers are very impressive. Um, so if he can can continue it, even a rate similar to that, then you know he'll he'll it win us points, but it's still very early doors. Um, yeah, I think we need to see a lot more of him before we can say we really trust him. But on his first two performances, I think it's it's fair to say that he he deserves to to continue as the 
first choice keeper for the next the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I mean that save, as you've already said, but that save against Preston was a brilliant one, um, and one that I think I doubt doubt button to to get down to and, and keep it out. So yeah, I'm I'm content with Palmer as the as the keeper at the minute. I think that's a great word to use. I, I think I'm content with him as well, Pete. And just to, just to move on to another position that we've kind of had to rejig a little bit in recent weeks. Obviously, we did go to three centre-halves, but both the Preston and Luton games saw Martin Kelly come in for his, his first starts as a West Bromwich Albion player. And I have to say, I'm very impressed. Uh, I, re- I really am. I, he made one unbelievable recovery challenge on Emil Reese against Preston that I thought was, I, I thought, I thought the forward had got the better of him. I really did. And how he got round him and made the challenge was, was just outstanding. And then you look at his, his clearance data against Luton and he just, he just seemed to, he just seems very no nonsense, Pete. He just seems to get the ball out of there. And when, and you know, when you've at times had to watch people like Kyle Bartley and I mean, look, Cedric Kipre is getting a lot of credit for what he's doing at Cardiff, and that's fair enough because he's obviously playing well for Cardiff. They like him there, but I didn't, I didn't see any of this for him as a West Bromwich Albion player, and I don't blame the club for shipping him out because you can only go on what you've seen, and what, and and I don't think we saw a lot from Kipre to warrant him being in the side, and I think he he takes risks as well. It's when you've watched those kind of defenders for a period of time, like your Bartleys and your Kipres, who I do think take chances. It's so refreshing to see a Martin Kelly type who is just an out-and-out defender and, if in doubt, just gets rid. Yeah, it's, um, I think there's a time and a place, really. Um, I think Kipra was probably one of our better defenders on the ball, actually, but he does take those risks and whenever I was watching him, I was kind of always a bit um, heart and mouth. I just, yeah, I just half expected him to, to drop a massive mistake and give the ball away in a stupid position or something. But I think for me, if Bruce had decided at the start that he was going to go for a back four, which he has done up until now, um, then I think I, I wouldn't fancy Kipper in the squad. I think he's too... Um, aggressive at times. Um, I think he get caught out of position. I think I don't think he's got the cover for if he had made a mistake in a in a back four. Um, yeah, so I think he's he's much more suited to a back a back three, a back five, whatever. Um, so for me, it was the right decision to to ship him out. I think if we wanted to play a back three, then I would have kept him. Um, but you know, do you, do you like O'Shea and? Kelly as the as the combination. They also look weirdly similar as well. They look like a father son duo. But um, <laughs> do, do you like them as a as a partnership in a four? If indeed that's what we went back to playing. Yeah, yeah. I think I I don't mind it. Um, I think obviously Ajay needs to come back in when he is fit. Um, I think he's probably our most important defender. Um, but Kelly started well, so it'll be interesting when. When Ajay is fit, what will he do with? Will it be Ajay and Kelly, or will he stick with Ajay and O'Shea's initial pairing? Um, I, think I suppose it bit... depends fitness-wise as well on how much you can flog out of Kelly, because obviously, you know, he hasn't really played for sort of what two years has he before before coming back in here? 
Yeah, so that is, yeah, I suppose that's the other worry um, that you've got with him. Um, obviously, not playing much. And, you know, he's he's definitely a senior player these days. So how many games is he going to be able to play for us when we're playing a lot of the time, Saturdays and, and midweek? So it's a busy schedule for, for a player that, that hasn't played much in the past couple of years and is definitely getting getting on a bit towards the end of his career. So, and probably yeah. the same problem with Peters, who's also showed up well. Yeah, I mean he's he's played a bit more over the past couple of years, but he's he's still coming towards the end of his career, and it's it's a very busy busy schedule, um, a lot of games to play. So if we're relying on on those two to be key parts of our defence, then. Um, yeah, I think we, we might have a few issues there because obviously we want them to be useful when they come in, but I can't see them both being able to play every game if we're playing twice a week. Let's just focus a little bit in on the Luton game and obviously one of the most um, striking things about the about the game pre-match was that there was a, there was an obvious change of shape. We we did go to three centre-halves, two wing-backs, as we've, uh, as we've mentioned, and... Um, Matt Phillips came on, at, came in at right wing back, which surprised a few. But I have to say, I thought he had a good first forty-five minutes after drifting out of the game in the in the second half. And um, and, and I thought the the three centre halves did pretty well. I thought Dara Kelly and and Peters. You know, obviously only our second league clean sheet of the season, and I I thought they they largely looked fairly untroubled. As I say, Palmer had to had to pull one tip over out of the out of the bag but it was a heavily deflected shot it wasn't wasn't even like they got a clean shot away it, it was one that was blocked and looped up and he had to he had to tip over I can't remember an awful lot else that he had to do other than coming for a few bits and and, and make you know because they bombed a lot of balls into the box but I thought our defence looked pretty it looked pretty solid um, I thought Livermore looked good um, in front of the the back four Yukoslu looked all right, but I, 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 after his early season form, where I thought he looked really promising, I just feel like I don't know whether the games have caught up with him or what it is, but he he looks like his form's gone off a little bit of a cliff. Um, Connor, I have a problem with as a left wing back. I just don't think he's dynamic enough in that system. Um, and then you looked at what was what was ahead of them, Brandon Thomas Asante. I thought it was a lot of energy. The problem with Brandon Thomas Asante is that he he has a league two touch at the moment. Like he does get dispossessed too much. Um, you look at his numbers; he was dispossessed far more than anybody else on on the pitch. And but at the same time, his work rate is unquestionable, and he did make stuff happen. He had two decent chances. The first one, I think he can only do as much as he does with it. I think the second one, he's got to score where that ball comes to him on the turn in the penalty area and he hits the post. I I was right behind it in the Brummy. He's got to score. Um, But I thought he generally had a pretty decent game. And I like the rotation that the system gave us between Jed and um, uh, Jed, Brandon Thomas, Asante and Grady. I thought they were allowed to move around. I thought for 45 minutes, we looked really good. But I felt like Nathan Jones worked us out at half time, and to be honest, we were toothless in the second half. What What did you think of the new system and 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 how it worked? And is it is it something we should look at going forward, or is it a big big concern that Nathan Jones did seem to snuff us out at half time? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, I think you you kind of summed it up very 
very well there that we we didn't really um, show much in the second half. I mean, just looking at the the numbers, if you look at the field so in the in the first half, then I think it was about sixty five percent in our favour. And then after half time, it was it was down to fifty one. So you know about fifty fifty. So I think we definitely definitely um, struggled more in the second half to kind of. Uh, get the ball into threatening areas. Um, I think Asante was um, useful for us being able to get the ball forward. Um, I think it was something like 19 progressive passes he received, which is you know very high. It was similar to what similar to the kind of numbers that Andy Carroll was putting up when he was just you know winning every long ball that went that went forward. Um, but we didn't we didn't create too many chances. Um, obviously the ones that you mentioned, but I think it was one of our, our lowest um, XGs for for a while, um, but at the other end of the pitch, it was again one of the lowest ones that we've conceded. So I don't know if it's worth the trade off of of being a bit more solid defensively for for not creating as many chances. Is there um, a happy medium anywhere for? Because as you say, we've gone one extreme to the other. Really, we've gone from creating tons and tons of chances and being one of the top scorers in the in the division but looking uh, looking completely porous at the back to being pretty much rock solid at the back but not carrying certainly in that second half I didn't think we carried any threat yeah you need to find that balance don't you because I mean we've gone from having draws every week of 2-2 and 3-3 to to go into a draw of nil nil and, and not really many chances at either end of the pitch. Um for me I think you do still need the attacking threat. We need to be able to score goals because well, we're we're down in the relegation zone and we've got we shouldn't be. With the quality of players that we've got, we should be able to get forward and create chances without Well otherwise we're gonna end up with about thirty five draws this season. Well we're heading that way, aren't we? Um but yeah, I think I think it might just be a case of the first time using that system as well, whether it's players not entirely used to it and maybe it's not it's not perfect yet and Bruce needs to see it in in action to actually make the adjustments to to kind of improve it. Maybe we'll see if Bruce sticks with it then we might see well, hopefully we will see some improvements at, on the offensive side and creating chances. Um hopefully he's he spotted a few things that need to change and he can work on that this week. What did you think of the role of the forward players in that system? Because I, I noticed from looking at the at the numbers that, for example, Jed was suddenly a lot more dribbly. He he did still put quite a lot of crosses in, but not anything near his usual numbers. Like, but he he dribbled he dribbled a lot more. He, uh, and there seemed to be a lot of rotation between him and Grady. They seemed to be switching positions, popping up here, there, and everywhere. What did you think of the way that, that they performed in that system? Yeah, I think. Um... Despite having Phillips kind of playing as a wing back behind him, Wallace still kind of kept the width a lot of the time and did put a, a few crosses in and did, as you say, switch with, with Grady sometimes and end up on the left. Um, with Grady, he was kind of a bit more tucked inside as he, he usually kind of um, drifts inside when he's attacking. He attacks towards the penalty area, starts wide and then goes inside when he's got the ball. Um so if you look at like the average positions of them, then you can see that that Wallace is 
much wider on the right and, and Grady's almost central close to Thomas Asante and he did find Thomas Asante a few times in dangerous areas um, with passes just kind of just into the box and just on the on the outside of the box um, from the left left inside so I think Grady linked up quite nicely got the ball to Thomas Asante quite well and, and Wallace kept that width um, I think obviously with Wallace you want him when he's got the ball to be in, in wide areas in general, because he's got that quality delivery. Um, but what when you do ball... if he's got something to hit in the middle? That's the thing. And I noticed against Preston that we seem to, a lot of the time we, we'd only have like one man, one man in the box when we've, we've got the ball in wide areas. He, I've it? literally written on my pad, no players in the box v Preston. I picked up on exactly the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't understand it because we've got one of the best crosses in the league, if not the best, but we've, we're not filling the box. You've got to have numbers in there. Give him an option to hit. If you've got one, if you've got Carlin Grant in the box on his own and three defenders with him, you've got no chance of finding him. If a, if a team concedes to a cross to Carlin Grant when you've got three defenders in the box all marking him, then, then you've got some serious issues, uh, even with the delivery of, of Wallace. Should we even be bothering with Carlin Grant as a nine at this point? Or would we be better almost saying, right, Carlin, your position is almost to rotate with um, uh, with with Grady on that left-hand side and that and the, Cleary and Brandon Thomas Asante are our two centre-forwards until DK's back? Well, maybe, but can we... Tr- Cleary's very, very I'm not young, saying playing. I'm not saying playing Cleary from the start, mate. I, I'm saying Brandon Thomas Asante at his age can probably can probably manage to play two games a week until the World Cup. I would. I, I reckon. I reckon he could play. He could play five games in the next three weeks. I reckon without without breaking down. Yeah, and for me, I'd, I'd be going with Thomas Asante over Grant, um, even just for the um, energy and, and willingness of him. It, I don't think you can argue that Grant's a better is technically a better player, but Thomas Asante makes runs. He he wants the ball. He wants to impact play, and he's he's a better option. Um, we perform better when we've got Thomas Asante on the pitch. I think Grant, um, uh, well, against Preston, Grant didn't seem interested. Um, you know there was. One of the quite... worst individual performances I have seen from a West Bromwich Albion player in a very long time. And he, he didn't want the ball. There was a few times, I mean, Grady played a nice one-two with him, but it was Grady was screaming at him to get into a position to actually be able to receive the ball rather than hiding behind behind a mid, midfielder that was blocking the lane. Um, yeah, he just, he just didn't seem to want to be involved. Um, so for me, Thomas Asante has got to, got to be the number nine um, for the next few weeks. And just he makes runs, and he he seems to want to make things happen. That that's the big difference is that he wants to make things happen, and he wants to impact a game, and he wants to impress. I think that's the difference between those two. And at the minute, with with how the atmosphere around just Albion in general is, is we need people that are desperate to impact the game and kind of lift spirits of it. I mean, in terms of people who are desperate to impact the game, I think you'd probably you'd probably put John Swift into that category, Pete. But he was obviously dropped against Luton, and understandably so, because there's not really an obvious place for him in the system that Bruce started with against Luton. I mean, we uh, there's no doubting that we have not seen 
the best of of John Swift. And I think I think you said before the at the start of the season that people seem to think John Swift is a is a Matthias Pereira type player, and he's really not. I mean, there's a few things that I'd put forward here. Either a have we totally not worked out how to use John Swift, or b should we not have bought John Swift and should have bought a player that is a proper number ten, or c fine to buy John Swift, but then if you're going to buy John Swift, who isn't a proper out and out number ten, did we buy the wrong player in OK Yukoslu to play in the eight? And really, we should have been after. Obviously, we tried for Rothwell, didn't happen. But, you know, for want of a better way of putting it, a Remain Sawyers type player, who obviously we let go, would have been a better fit in that, in, in that eight role with Swift ahead of them. I just don't feel like, I feel like we've, we're obviously paying this guy an awful lot of money in wages because if we hadn't, he wouldn't have come. And yet, I don't, I, I'm not sure we knew what we bought. And if we did, we certainly haven't worked out how to utilise him. Yeah, I don't doubt that he's a quality player, but I just don't think he's the player that everyone was hoping he was going to be. I don't think he, he ever was. He will get assists throughout the season and he will definitely get goals if you if you use him correctly, but he's he's never going to get as many assists as someone like Mateus Pereira would. He's not he's not going to create chances out of nothing in open play and, and put these incredible through balls through gaps that no one else would see to a striker that's running onto them. Um, you know, he's got a good delivery from set pieces and I think that's kind of where his, his um, numbers that people would check when you sign out a player, his goals and assists, kind of misrepresented him a bit. I mean, last season, I think it was 11 goals and 13 assists, which is a brilliant return. Um, but then if you look a bit deeper, three of his goals were penalties, so... Doesn't really show much. Um, doesn't really re- represent much attacking quality. Scoring a penalty, I think most players on a, a pitch would be able to do that. Um, and one was a free kick as well, which again doesn't really represent the open play quality. Obviously, having a set piece specialist is is very useful. But if you want a player that's going to create opportunities for himself in open play, then you probably shouldn't be looking at goals scored from set pieces. I mean, so if you take them out, it's down to seven goals. And similarly for, for assists, he's last season, three of his assists were from corners and one was from a free kick, which again is an open play. It's a, That's a different skill entirely, having good set piece delivery and also relies on, on having the players to attack the ball and, and score from those set pieces and having the right coaches setting up those set pieces. Um, and also a lot of his assists, a few of his assists were, were just kind of passes into a striker. I think one was literally from the halfway line. He passed it about 10 yards to Lucas Jow and he kind of just ran at the defence. Um, I think he took on a player and, and then scored from outside the box. And it's, it's there was a couple of them where, are they really assists or are they just passes that it's the, the last pass before a striker scored a great goal? I think... You, yeah, I think you're kind of overvaluing the impact of of Swift in that in that move. For example, he's he's literally just made a simple pass that anyone on the pitch could, but he's credited with an assist because it's the last pass before a striker yeah. does like, it. Like whoever gave scores. it to Maradona in '86 gets an assist. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, that shouldn't really be counted as, it doesn't really show any creativity, does it? It's just, it's literally, I could have made the pass. So, but. I've not seen you play, so I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't think he was ever going to be as creative as Pereira was for us. Um, I don't doubt he's a good player and he will get assists, but I don't think he's a real, um, yeah, a real creator. Um, so, to answer your initial question, I think we maybe we didn't know what we were signing because I think we could have done with some, someone that was going to consistently create a ton of chances from open play. Um, but then again, maybe we it was a fine signing because, um, like I say, he's still a great player. But then we could have well made the wrong signing elsewhere in, in Yakuzlu. I think you kind of got to have one or the other, it had to be Yakuzlu is a real defensive midfielder. Someone's going to win the ball back and then have someone that is going to be able to create chances out of nothing as your 10. Or you have Swift and have someone as your your central midfielder that's got a bit more ability on the ball than Yakuzlu has. Because, um, yeah, his, his passing isn't great. I think we've seen that so far this season. It was something that was um, pretty obvious in the numbers before we signed him and from... His previous spell at us, um, so it's it does come back down to recruitment, doesn't it? Which we've said a lot. We don't seem and to have, have and having a wide net as well. Yeah, and having a, a list of players that that we might be interested in signing. Having a, a pen, a paper. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we've got to get them first, don't we? Um, expensive, mate. Expensive in the in in this financial climate. Yeah, I might have to take out a loan for one, but you know. Um, that's the thing. The, the scouting is, we've said it so many times, but it's just so limited. And you wonder how much how much work was actually put into to trying to work out what we are actually signing or whether we've just seen 11 goals and 13 assists and then being one of the best players in the division and thought, oh, yeah, that'll fix our problems. But Well, that, that's, what, what, that's what got me, is when people questioned Bruce's substitutions with Brandon Thomas-Asante, his defence was... Yeah, but I'm I'm bringing on a guy in Carlin Grant who scored 18 goals last season, and John Swift, who's got the most assists in 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 the championship over the last two seasons. Yeah, all right, Steve, but you're bringing Carlin Grant on as a number nine, which isn't his position, and you're bringing on John Swift on the left wing, which isn't his position. That you know, it's all well and good saying I'm bringing on these these. Data, uh, the, the, these these players who carry this data with them, but if you're not playing them in a in a place in a position where they can actually do those things, then there's no point bringing them on. And it it doesn't it doesn't seem like he has an understanding of what the players are. He just sees, as you say, Pete, goals and assists, which we which we've always said is it's not always a good way to judge people. You know, after a certain point, there becomes no smoke without fire, and like. If a player's scoring thirty goals every season, they're just a good goal scorer. But if if, if a player is scoring um, goals from a wide position, a bit like you know you uh, you, you spoke about with um, Ben Brereton Diaz, that if you tried to play him as an out and out nine, he'd probably struggle because he likes to play wide off somebody like Gallagher. If you've got to understand what these players are and what the best way to get the best out of them is, and I don't I don't think Steve Bruce entirely understands that and and furthermore and i just wanted to kind of move that move on to this to uh, as we come towards the end of the pod that when you look at the changes he made against luton um he 
he, he, you know, he, he, he didn't like the reaction to them. Fair enough. Although I think the reaction was largely justified to a certain degree. Um, but he didn't make us a more of an attacking threat in a game that we needed to win. He took off a left winger in, in Grady Diangana and brought on a 10 in Swift and stuffed him out on the left wing. He brought off a number nine in Brandon Thomas Asante and brought on a left winger in Carlin Grant and stuffed him into the nine. And what little threat we carried was non-existent for the last 10 minutes. And it's not the first time. I mean, you look at the last 10 minutes against Preston, all we saw was balls being passed back and forth, back and forth across our back four, as we have no idea how to break this team down. Similarly, Cardiff, I didn't see any way that, that we had any clue how to break teams down later on. Even, even against Watford, I felt we ran out of ideas in a game that we'd largely dominated first half, first 45 minutes an hour. And yes, we have a problem with the way we start games because we can see goals, but I don't think we have a problem with the way we've started games offensively. But I feel like, and you can tell me if you think I'm being unfair here, Pete, I feel like other than Middlesbrough on the opening day where I felt Bruce, as the game went on, got the better of the tactical battle against Chris Wilder. But that aside... I feel like as games go on, other managers make tactical tweaks to their setup to try and negate the attacking threat that we have. And I feel like, you know, it becomes a bit of a game of chess at that point that, you know, they're they're moving their pieces around the board to try and stop our attack. And Bruce doesn't move his pieces. and, And I don't think he doesn't respond to me as games develop to the the moves that other managers make, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I struggle to see too many um, just patterns, just general ideas of what we are actually trying to do rather than just admit a lot of it seems to be get the ball to Grady and see what he does and try and use him as much as possible, which isn't a bad idea. But like you say, we if if that gets sussed out and managers make, changes to kind of um um kind of negate that then we do seem to 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 lack ideas and I think another thing is that we we struggle to a lot of the time it seems like we're creating chances because we're we're losing because we can see quite early a lot of the time. Um and that's when we really seem to go for it and, and actually be able to create our chances. Um like when the other the game against Luton, we didn't create a ton of chances, but we also weren't losing. So, so maybe that's why we didn't have that many chances because we weren't desperate to. It almost to... takes the handbrake off the goal going in against us. Is effectively what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say, and which is an issue if we can only only create chances when we're when we're a goal behind or two goals behind. Because, I mean, if that's the only way you're going to create chances, then then you're not going to win any games, are you? So. Yeah, I, I do have concerns about about our ability to to actually um, well just just win games because if you need a goal to go in against you before you can start playing, then then you're going to struggle. Because equally, I, I think I think this works both ways. By the way, Pete, I wonder whether whether Bruce has the ability to shut games up as well as to tweak us to be more offensive because. 
whilst I have a problem with, uh, with with how he's gone and tried to win games, I think back to Swansea and going 2-1 up. Surely at that point, you make changes to make us more solid right away. Because as soon as the game kicked back off at 2-1 up, I turned to the fellow I sit next to in, in a Birmingham road and I said, we won't win this. We won't win this because I could see that Oberfemi was getting too much space. Anybody could. And then, you know, you, you, you think, you think back to, you think back to other games. He just, uh, even the whole game, even something as silly as being as far ahead as, as we are, we don't shut the game down and then we let two silly goals in. And okay, it doesn't change the, the, the end result because we obviously go on and win the game 5 2 in the end. But, you still shouldn't be conceding those two goals. I, I, as much as I worry about his ability to tactically tweak, to break a team down when we need to, I wonder whether he can tactically tweak to make us solid. I, I just worry that he can't make changes, Pete, in-game. I actually think the way Steve Bruce generally sets us up for a game, for the majority of the season, from the off, hasn't been too bad because... Okay, we've lacked confidence in recent weeks, and he's—I uh, think he's—he's he's scrambled for an answer, and he's made mistakes while he's been scrambling. And a Jai's injury has definitely affected him. But if you go back to pre the Birmingham game, I think the way we've been set up in, uh, to start the majority of games has been absolutely fine. But I think his adaptation, whether that's offensively to go and win the game or get an equaliser, hasn't been there. And I think his adaptation defensively to see games out in a really solid way when we've took the lead isn't there either. And that's interesting because we've already said that we think he's slow to make um to make changes and decisions just in general, for, like dropping button, for example, and um reacting to the fact that we've lost Ajay's um pace to cover behind the back line. So if he's slow in making those changes, then you know, you can probably relate that to, to him being slow and making actual changes in the game to, to affect the result. It's a big concern. It's a big concern for Albion. I think uh, it, it, in the end, what we're, what we're effectively saying is something has got to give at our football club. And this is the point we will leave the pod on for today because it's been a little bit of a bumper one. We've got, we've gone on for, for, uh, for a little bit, but with two games between podcasts you're always going to have a little bit more to bit more to talk about but I think the reality is something has got to give for West Bromwich Albion at this uh, at this point in time Steve Bruce is not showing himself as the man who can win games for West Bromwich Albion that is the point the fans seem to have given up on him I do deplore the fans to make their point but please try and do it in a way that is humane and decent and does not turn into you know verbal abuse in a car park I don't think that's helpful but yeah continue to be vocal in in the stands if that's what it takes because because something's got to give because you clearly we as supporters are clearly being ignored our interests are clearly being ignored by Ron Gourlay who said that he was going to listen to us he clearly isn't he's clearly he's clearly looking after his own self-interest and his mate's self-interest he clearly wants uh, he either wants his payoff from uh, from lie or he wants to keep his job for as long as he possibly can and and Steve Bruce understandably is not going to walk away from this job unless he is fired I don't think any of us would to be honest if we had if we had a big fat payoff sat there waiting for us 
then I don't think any of us would walk away from, uh, would just hand our resignation in and go, here you go, keep your million quid or whatever it, whatever the sum of money in, in Steve Bruce's contract might be. You know, we wouldn't walk away from the sums of money at play here, nor will Gourlay, nor will lie. But something has got to give because if it doesn't, we will end up in League One. And I think we need, I was, I was glad to see the fans being vocal in, in the stands at the weekend and expressing their distaste at the owner. Long may it continue until something starts to change because I don't think our chief executive has our best interests at heart. I know our owner doesn't have our best interests at heart. And whilst I'm certain Steve Bruce believes he is doing all he can to win football matches, he's not trying to lose these games. I don't believe he is the right man uh, from here on in to get results for West Bromwich Albion Football Club because I think the players have lost faith in him. It certainly seems that way when you look at how heads went down late on against against Preston and how they didn't want to attack the game in the second half against Luton. And I certainly think the fans, a lot of them have lost faith in Steve Bruce. So I think we've reached an impasse with him. So continue to be vocal, continue to please do it in in the right manner. Um, and let's hope that something gives and something changes at our football club because at the moment, the direction, we're only going one way, unfortunately. Let's hope when we record next, which will be after the Reading game, we've actually got a midweek without a West Bromwich Albion game. So it, it's li- at least it's a midweek that the Albion can't ruin. Let's look at the upside. Um, but we've got a midweek without a, an Albion game and then Reading at the weekend. Pete and I will record after the Reading game. Hope upon hope, maybe, maybe, just maybe for the second time this season, we'll have a victory to talk about. I'm not saying that with any real belief for fairly obvious reasons. Until then, thanks for listening and off the bank. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.